amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Black Friday follow-up episode. This episode is going to be dropping the day after Thanksgiving. I hope that everyone had a great Thanksgiving yesterday, and hopefully we will have one in a couple of days. Mike and I are, of course, recording this prior to the drop date. But in this week's follow-up, we're going to be addressing all of your questions from episode number 503, The Discovery. Yeah, and we got a lot of social media this week. All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and get right into all of your listener questions. Okay, our first question here comes from Katrina. She writes, I noticed a link between all three boys and the Cub Scouts as either members or really wanted to be a member. This put my radar up as my husband was abused by his scoutmaster in the 1980s, as were many boys from the 1970s through the 90s. I tried to see who the Cub Scout leader was for Stevie and Michael, and found one source that stated that the scout leader was Michael's dad. As far as you are aware, is this true? I really don't know. I have come across some of those documents or you know, on the internet people saying that Todd Moore was the Cub Scout leader, uh, but I don't have any official confirmation of that. And Todd Moore was also a truck driver. He was over the road, so he wasn't home a whole lot. So I guess I would be surprised if he was, but I'm not real sure. Also, as a little bit of a clarification with Chris Byers, I misunderstood Mark Byers when I was speaking with him, and he told me that Christopher had never been in the Cub Scouts because he always would bring the letter home to sign up too late. Mark said, no, he was in the Cub Scouts and he had been only to a couple of meetings because they would send a note at school saying the the next meeting is tomorrow night or whatever, and Chris would bring it home late. So, so Chris was, in fact, in the Cub Scouts. He just didn't go to very many meetings because he forgot to bring the notes home. But as far as who the Cub Scout leader was, I can't give you a solid answer one way or the other on that. Okay, and then Bill writes, if the boys were killed between 7 or 8 p.m., could they have heard the parents or others during this time? And was there any footprints of the boys or others at the crime scene? It seems that there would be lots of footprints on the bank and slide marks as the boys were moved to the water. Okay, to answer your first question, no. I don't think if the boys were killed between 7 and 8, that they would have heard any of the parents. And that's because, again, we don't exactly know what was going on with Terry Hobbs at that time. Dana Moore had sent Dawn up looking for the boys, but that was up in the, the Robin Hood area south of the bayou, down at the end of 14th Street. Where there, you know, There's a lot of, of woods between that area and where they were ultimately killed and found. 
And the Byers clan, Mark and Melissa and Ryan, were driving around looking for the boys. And at that time, they were down in the southeast area of the neighborhood, down by Broadway and Ingram and 17th and 18th, that way down in the southeast corner. So I don't think that anybody was up around that area hollering for them so that they would hear them. But it is important to note that if someone had been, at some point, anybody that was you know, up there by the apartments at Mayfair, uh, the end of Macaulay Street, anywhere near the pipe, they were just, like I said, a stone's throw away. So anybody that was screaming, they would have heard that in those woods after that. And I think that the person or persons, when they were concealing the bodies, possibly at that time, they may have heard screaming. I, I know that you can hear those voices from that distance because we've tested that. But at that time, I don't think anybody was in that part of the area or of the neighborhood yelling for the boys yet. They were all further to the east down by what the area that they referred to as Robin Hood, where all the bike trails were and stuff, which was further to the east over by 14th Street. And regarding the footprints, I think that it is pretty clear that the killer or killers wiped the area down pretty well. I mean, the, the one bank where Tony Anderson found the, the fingerprint or partial palm print, whatever it was, which he said he believes most likely was a thumbprint, that one bank was clearly wiped down. I mean, you're right, you have three boys plus a killer or killers. There's a lot of activity. I mean, boys were being bound up and possibly dragged. I mean, they only probably all weighed about 60 pounds, so they didn't necessarily have to be dragged. But there was a lot of activity there, and there was only two footprints found. And they were off into the weeds a little bit where they wouldn't have been as easily noticeable to the killer. But the reality is, and something we need to consider as we move forward as we start to develop a profile here, is the person or persons who did this did a really good job of concealing this crime scene. I mean, they, they ultimately, the boys were found due to a few shoes floating up and out of the water. But, I mean, there's no, right around the bank, no footprints, no handprints, no nothing, no clothes, no sign of anybody being there. Enough so that the police several times walked right past it and never saw the boys. So... Let's keep that in mind, but no, there were no footprints, but I think that it's quite obvious that the area had been washed down. Also, something that we had not mentioned in the episode was later, Tony Anderson, as well as a couple of the other detectives, went and did a luminol test and found that near that area where everything had been washed down, uh, it did flag for luminol, uh, which is uh, a chemical used to, it makes blood glow in the dark, basically. And it was clear that there had been blood there and it had been wiped down or, or washed down by the killer. So we know for a fact that the killer or killers uh, spent a, a bit of time wiping that down so that there wouldn't be any footprints. Okay, and then Patrick writes, I understand the bodies may have been submerged in murky water, perhaps in the 7 o'clock hour, making them easy to miss in the subsequent search by parents or neighbors. But what about the bikes? How and when were they found? How were they missed by all, particularly by the boys who crossed the pipe? Well, the bikes were in even deeper and even murkier water. First of all, they were found shortly after the boys were found. But remember, and it's uh, you really need to go online, at least to our Facebook and Twitter profile. Katie Ross, who's working on our website, we just we had a bit of a meeting last night, and we're moving forward with things, but she's trying really quickly to play catch-up to get the website up with the new documents, so I apologize for that. And like I said before, a lot of that's on me for being slow to get back to her, but we're in the process. But I post a lot of this stuff on our Twitter feed and on Facebook to, to go look at the maps, or even just pull up a map of the area on Google Maps or on your, your iPhone or whatever. But the 10-mile, which is actually the 10-mile diversion channel, is what it's technically called. But the 10-mile bayou that runs to the north of the neighborhood is about 20 to 25 feet wide. 
And when the water, you know, the water goes up and down depending on the amount of rain. Well, when when I was there, I've been in that water when the water was low. You could see the water line was much lower than it was at the time of this murder from the crime scene photos. When I got into the water along with Shane Yoder, our sound engineer, uh, we were d- doing some work down in there with waders on. And right there by the pipe, the water line was about nipple height on me, and I'm six foot one. Uh, it was almost over the top of the waders. It's also a very soft bottom, so you sink into it. At this time, when the crime occurred, there had been quite a bit of rain. The water level was much higher, much closer to the bottom of the pipe, probably would have been over my head or close to it if I'd been standing in there once you sink into the mud back then. And it was just completely just mud soup. It looked exactly like I had described uh, the other, the small creek that flows into it where the boys were found about 60 feet away. Uh, you couldn't see anything. If you put your hand in the water one inch below the surface, you wouldn't be able to see it. So that that's how they were missed. They just They just couldn't see him. It appears that one way or another, my personal opinion is that the boys had left their bike on the side of the pipe, walked across the pipe on foot, and then after they were killed, as part of the concealment, the killer or killers took their bikes and just dropped them in the water right there next to the pipe. And they would have immediately sunk down and been well out of sight. They, they had to be found with grappling hooks. Can we just recap the bindings on the boys? Sure. So starting with the upstream side, we have Michael Moore. Michael Moore is the one that was 27 feet upstream from Stevie Branch, uh, where he was found. He had two black bindings. The bindings were right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to right ankle, six or seven inches of slack in between. And I also know, I saw late today after we you had already wrote down what questions you were going to ask, somebody tweeted and wanted to know, how could you move your hands in front of you, bound that way? I mean, just the best way I could tell you to do this is just do it. You know, put your right wrist seven inches away from your right ankle behind and see how you can just swing it around. Uh, there's no, there's not, it's not restraining you behind your back. But in any case, Michael Moore, both of his bindings were black. He was the one that had the one square knot, the one odd knot, which again, I want to point out, if you're tying a double knot, uh, which is, you know, two half hitch knots, and on the second one, if you just even accidentally cross the, you know, left over right instead of right over left, you end up with a square knot. But he had the one square knot. He also had the one random string uh, that, that wasn't a shoelace from one of the other shoes, which I want to come back to that in a minute. And I don't know if you have a question about this, but I want to come back to that and discuss what that might mean. Uh, but moving downstream, we come to Stevie Branch, who has uh, his left wrist was bound to his left ankle with a white shoelace, right wrist, right ankle with a black shoelace. And Christopher Byers, a little bit below him, five feet away, had left wrist to left ankle with a white shoelace, right wrist to right ankle with a black shoelace. So if we take a little closer look at these bindings, they tell us a few things. Number one, they tell us that personally, I think that whoever killed these boys didn't intend to kill them. They didn't prepare themselves to bind the boys if it was to bind them while they were conscious or alive or if it was part of concealment, they didn't bring the materials they needed, and they had to use the the children's own shoelaces to do that. So that is a good indication that this was not a premeditated attack. The, the killer was not prepared for this. Now, if we look at the positions of the bodies and how the bindings are put together, so you got a white and a black on Stevie and Christopher, both of them, and then two black on Michael. So the killer or killer didn't just strip each boy down and take their own shoes and tie them up right there in a neat package. It seems to me that it was a process, which again is an indication that all three boys were unconscious when this happened. And there's, of course, some debate about that out there. But 
I believe that all three were unconscious when it happened because I think that all the shoes were stripped of their shoelaces and kind of put into a pile. And then the the offender or offenders uh, worked methodically through the boys and started tying them up. Otherwise, you'd see you know Christopher Byers, who had two black shoelaces. One was intact, actually, would have two black bindings. Stevie Branch, who had white shoelaces, would have two white shoelaces. And Michael Moore, the same. But then when we look at Michael Moore, this tells us a lot, too. So his bindings... He has the only square knot, the only odd knot, and he also has the only odd binding. And he's also separated from the other two boys from about 27 feet away. Now, if you look at the crime scene photos, you can see that this is not an area. It's not like an open field where you can take off running. These are steep banks on both sides that come down to this creek. So running is is going to be very, very tricky. So in my opinion, there's there's an indication here that the attack began with either Christopher Byers or Stevie Branch. They're both together, and I think that whoever the killer or killers were were able to control them for a moment, that, that one was attacked, then the other, they're both close together. Maybe one was trying to help the other. There's a lot of different scenarios as to how someone could control these boys, but it appears to me that Michael Moore took off and tried to run away. He took off, he didn't make it far, and he couldn't make it far because there was a huge steep bank, there was a creek, and where there was some space on the bank on one side, that quickly narrows to woods, and then there's a bank on the other side, he would have to cross the water. But I think that he takes off, uh, the offender catches him in a matter of minutes, or seconds really, he was only 27 feet away, and I think that he was probably likely the last to be attacked based on the proximity to the other ones. But I think that the crime scene concealment likely started with Michael Moore. You know, so the, the, the attacks are over. All three boys are laying there unconscious. And it's time to start concealing the crime scene. And the killer, if this theory is correct, at that point is standing next to Michael Moore. He's right there with him, the last one to get attacked, and begins the concealment with him. I, personally, I believe the purpose of the bindings was to make the boys into a smaller package. Uh, so that, you know, the arms or legs wouldn't show up above the surface of the water uh, in order to keep the entire bodies underwater. Okay, I want to stop you right there because we did have a question from a listener, EZ, asking about if those bindings were used to easily transport the victims. He refers to deer hunting. Oh, like two guys carrying like a, a stick with the... Yeah, say if you have a stick and then, mm -hmm. yeah, and then they're just, they're hanging from the stick. I don't think so, personally. I mean, the, the shoelaces aren't that strong uh, to hold them up that way. I mean, it's a good thought. Um, but I don't think he's far off the mark. Personally, to me, it, it reminds me of deer hunting. And just for all of you to realize, this is not easy stuff to talk about, but it has to be done. When you're hunting deer or any other animal and you're transporting them or uh, when they're being butchered, you'll bind legs in this way, binds and you know le legs on a deer, legs and arms. And you're basically just trying to make the package smaller. So to me, it, it has some indications of either a hunter, just in a different way than Easy's talking about here, or like a butcher. If you you know buy a chicken, you know they don't just leave it flailing around. They take string and they tie it up to make it into a smaller package. So uh, there are some indications of that. I don't think that it was necessarily used for transport. Uh, but getting back to Michael Moore and how how he was bound, I think that the killer or killers, the offenders here, the unsubs, were in a position where they murdered three boys and didn't mean to, you know, or and did not necessarily didn't mean to, but it wasn't intentional. They weren't prepared for this. It kind of just happened some way or another. And they're trying to decide how to dispose of the bodies or try to conceal the bodies at this point. They know 
that if these boys are found, they're going to be in trouble. So I think that that black shoestring and the square knot are good indications that they tried something and realized that wasn't going to work. Uh, so maybe the, the killer took one of their own shoelaces and or boot laces or something and started to tie up Michael Moore, realized they didn't have enough or there was a string in a pocket or something. Who knows? And then they got the idea after tying that first binding, you know what, they all have shoelaces, I'll just use their shoelaces. And so they they divert from the plan at that point and, and start pulling all of the shoelaces off, which again, now there's already one binding made, so he only needs, you know, there, there's a grand total of 12 knots here, four knots on each boy, you know, wrist, wrist, ankle, ankle. Uh, so he tied two of the knots, one of the bindings on Michael Moore, uh, the rest of them he uses the shoelaces. So I think that the the square knot and the odd string uh, likely were an initial attempt, and then the killer or killers think it through a little bit and realize there's much more uh, string there with the shoelaces and go on from there. And maybe they've settled down a little bit and, and started to focus in a little more, and they get all the knots right from that point forward. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Matt wants to know if there's any credibility in the theory that Michael Moore was tied up with a shoelace that was cut in half. I've read that theory. Uh, it's really hard to know because it's very vague in the testimony. We just know that there's the one missing uh, shoelace or there's the one shoelace that was left on Christopher Byer's shoes. In my opinion, no. I mean, you, you have all the bindings. If you think about if any of you have small children around this age how long the shoelaces are, they're not very long. And each boy has their wristbound, which has the shoelace wrapped around them. Basically, if you have two loops around the wrist and then a double knot on wrist and ankle, and there's six to seven inches in between. That's a lot of shoelace. And so in order for that to be one, I, I just, no, I don't think so. There's no way because the other bindings, which we have you know, photographs of, I, I don't have a crime scene photograph yet of this particular binding to give you an answer to that. I don't know why it's not available right now, but it's, it's clear that they used all of the shoelace to make the binding wrist to ankle. There, there's not long you know, bits of, of, of shoelace left over or slack at the end of them. They're, they use the entire shoelace. So cutting that in half, I just don't think it would be, be possible. If it was you would have seen his wrist touching his ankle in order for that to happen. So, and again, that would be pretty obvious. You know, shoelaces have the the eyelets on the end or whatever you call them that have the, the hard pieces on the end to help you get them through the eyelets. It would be easy for them to say this was a shoelace cut in half, but instead they said pieces of string. Okay, moving on to the fingerprint found in the mud. Alexis asks, is a fingerprint in mud really of a quality that can be used for high quality analysis? Not for high-quality analysis, but Tony Anderson, when he was talking about this in the interview, and it, 
And that interview that we played last week goes on a little longer, and you can find it on YouTube if you want to see the whole thing. Just look up Tony Anderson, West Memphis 3, and you'll see the interview. But he says that he was able to clearly identify, he said, seven or eight points. And I think, and I, I haven't looked it up, I don't know off the top of my head, but I believe in order to get a conclusive match, they need 10 or 12 points. But he explains this a little bit in that interview and says that with seven or eight points, they can easily rule somebody out. Meaning, in order for a fingerprint to be a match, all the points have to match. And so you, you, you can pull how many distinct points out of there. Say there's 12. They compare it to my print. And they can, they can match up all 12 of those. And they can say, I could be included as being the contributor to that. And if you get more points at some point, you can say, yes, that's officially his print. So he said he could, he could pull seven or eight points out of there. So he may not be able to, to a degree where he could confidently state, this is this person's fingerprint. What he could do is if, if somebody matched all seven or eight points, say they match all seven or eight points, they cannot be ruled out. But what you can do is rule people out. And that's what he was able to do with everyone else that he tested because they didn't match the seven or eight points and you know, say seven points, whatever it was. If they don't match those, then it doesn't matter going forward. There, it doesn't matter how many more they match. They have to match all seven of those to be included. And no one did. Kendra writes, was the fingerprint found in the mud compared to the parents of the boys? And were they on a list of the hundreds it was compared to? As of right now, we don't know. I'm trying to make an appointment to go down and actually visit the evidence room and see what is available in the evidence room, as opposed to uh, the website. Which is, by the way, a good website to get tons and tons of the case documents. If you feel like doing some perusing, is a, a site called Callahan. And if you just start looking up Callahan West Memphis 3, it'll come up on Google. Uh, whoever put that website together has obviously spent years and years and years, and it's got trial transcripts and just about every document you think of, but everything's not there. So some of the stuff we have from Open Records Request, some of it we have from other people connected to the case, and I still think there's more in the actual evidence room. But as far as this fingerprint is concerned, uh, what was said by Tony Anderson in that, that video when he was being interviewed by the police in 2007, I believe it was, is that they were compared to all the officers that were on the scene, some of the officers that weren't even on the scene. Basically, I think they went through their whole database of fingerprints, and the three victims, Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, and anyone that they thought was considered a suspect. At one point, uh, they looked at John Mark Byers. They took his fingerprints in the early stages of the investigation when they were questioning him. I don't know as far as anyone else. I think Todd Moore, maybe, uh, because I know that they did at least look into Todd Moore enough to verify that you know his trucking logs, that he was where he said he was, that he wasn't around. They may have tested him against him. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know about any of the wives. I don't know about Terry Hobbs. We have no record that they were ever tested against any of them. Okay, and then Debbie wants to know, are the shoe print molds still available? I would assume so. Again, I'd like to get into the evidence room and see. As far as I know, that evidence hasn't been destroyed or anything, and plaster casts were made of them. We do have the photographs, which I'm going to go and get up on the Twitter feed since they're not the website's not up to date yet, and on Facebook, so people can take a look at those. But I imagine that the, they still have them. But at this point... I don't know how much good they're going to be other than to maybe get a size of a shoe because yeah, surely no one is hanging on to the shoes. You know, the, whoever the killer was, it doesn't still have the shoes that he was wearing that day when he when he committed these murders. So it's that's evidence, like I said last week, that would have been really useful right then. You know, if you start if you if you really start digging his shoes with anybody close to the victims, any of that stuff and start comparing and finding out whose shoes these were. That would have been great, but 
you know, 24 years later, I don't, I don't feel like it's going to be useful evidence. Okay, and Cynthia has four questions. We'll just go one at a time here. Her first question is, were the bikes found on the same side of the pipe or one on each side? I always thought it was one on each side, which is what was stated in the crime scene video taken that day. This is a good question, and honestly, I don't have the answer for you. The audio that we played in this last episode from Officer Griffin, he clearly says that he was there when they found the pipes, and they were both found on the east side of the pipe about midway across the stream. That was under oath testimony at trial. Easy enough, we have our answer. But there was crime scene video that's available on YouTube. If you look up West Memphis 3 crime scene videos, then it's disturbing, but it's up there. There is a video of three officers, I believe, standing on the pipe, and they're asked, and I think it's by a reporter, that says, where'd you find the bikes? And they point to one side and say, that one right over there, and that one right over there. And they point to opposite sides of the pipe. So, like, there was one on each side. As a matter of fact, we originally, when we first started doing this, only had that video to try to to base this on before we got too deeply into the case documents. And we actually, me, Shane, and Mike, recreated the video to try to get an accurate location of the bikes. Mike tucked himself back in with a video camera to get to about the exact same location of the camera person in that video. We studied the video and, and, and looked at notches on the pipes and beams and put our feet in the exact same location and then recreated where they pointed to. So up to that point, I believe, like Cynthia does, that there was one bike on each side of the pipe. But then Officer Griffin's testimony at trial says they were both found on the east side of the pipe. So as many things with this case, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, Another thing that just wasn't documented well by the West Memphis Police Department. Next, she writes, Stevie's face is described as stained with blood by you. But I've also heard talk that the reddening may have been an acid burn of some sort, either from his vomit or a harsh chemical. And also, can you state your source? Yeah, well, the source is the autopsy and autopsy photos. And I've heard that rumor, but I don't see... Remember, he's in water. So it's not like a chemical sitting on him for a long time. Vomit would be washed away. And if you... Well, you won't, hopefully, ever have to see this or have the opportunity to, but... The best way I could describe it, and I think I said this in the episode, the left side of Stevie Branch's face was mutilated. I mean, there were were just cuts and cuts and scratches and abrasions and bruising. He, the left side of his face, uh, one way or another was, was smashed up pretty good. So I think the the reddening obviously was from perimortem wounds, I think, because your your body's not going to turn red like that from a postmortem, meaning before he was dead, uh, before his heart stopped beating. Um, the left side of his face was beaten hard enough to cause a lot of some swelling and bruising and bleeding. Now, as far as there's still being blood on his face, it could have still been that, you know, it just once he got out of the water and warmed up a little bit, some of it ran out of the wounds from back then. But I think that the redness probably wasn't staining from blood. It may have just been redness from, from the injury sustained before death. Now, some of the wounds that were within that area of his face on the left side of his face that were cuts and abrasions, those could have been caused postmortem several different ways, and they just happened to be a cut within an area that was already red. I mean, they didn't react as as though they were he was still alive. It just happened to be in the same location. So, yeah, the, the source is autopsy, autopsy photos, and no, nah, I don't I don't buy the acid or the vomit explanation. I think it was it was definitely from perimortem injuries in my non-medical opinion. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah writes, seems to me the only way one killer inflicts head injuries on three child victims without at least one victim getting away is if the killer got the jump on all three boys, individually, in three separate surprise attacks. And that seems pretty unlikely, right? Given the terrain and everything, no, I, I think that is very unlikely. But I think if we go back to the beginning of the episode here where we started to discuss this, given the location of the bodies and the terrain, I think that she's exactly right. I think that one did start to get away. It's just a matter of, you know, they're, they're down in this, this ravine, this creek, and they just can't get away, especially if you're dealing with an adult versus, you know, 60-pound, 4-foot-tall, 8-year-old boys. But I think we're leading into the fact that there either were multiple offenders keeping track of all three of the boys, like somebody to kind of corral them in, maybe one at each end or, or maybe more. Or if you're dealing with one individual, in my opinion, you're looking at someone who has to be some kind of an authority figure. Because it's not as hard as you think. You know, it's not like whoever murdered these boys pulled out a gun and shot one of them in the head, where the other two see, oh my goodness, they killed him. You know, these these were blows to the head. And a couple of the boys had some, which we'll get into later, some history of some abuse. Kind of used to seeing and feeling hits in the heads. Uh, so I, I think, you know, if somebody gets hit in the head... They're not thinking, you just killed my friend. They just saw them get hit. And I think that someone who is maybe an authority figure to them, and that could be a police officer, a teacher, maybe even any adult, really, but I think, you know, or a parent, uh, something like that, that that person could say, or, there's several ways that you could manipulate the other two to sticking around, uh, either as, you know, a threat, you stay right here, or I'm going to get you too. Now, you as an adult might think, well, that's dumb. He's clearly going to do that to me too. But as a child, you, you have this, this trust for adults. And so they say, you stay right here or you're going to get it too. Or, oh my God, I've heard him come here and help me. There's ways to threaten, ways to manipulate. But I think that the way things are laid out, that it make, it, it all makes sense that there was some sort of manipulation to get the other two boys to stay put after the first was struck, which I believe had to either been Stevie Branch or Christopher Byers. I don't think that you hit Michael Moore and then chase down the other two and catch them together. I think probably hits one, convinces the other two to stay, hits the second one, and even at eight years old, when you see the second boy go down, you know there's trouble and you're taken off. And so I, I think that either Stevie or Christopher were hit first, knocked down, knocked unconscious. Somehow uh, the offender or offenders got the other two to stick around. Then the second one of them takes a blow. Michael Moore realizes, I got to get out of here. He takes off and runs upstream. Uh, gets caught relatively quickly, 
and is also attacked right there where he was found. And and to me, the crime scene is indicative of one offender. I think that the the shoelace bindings being staggered in a white and black, white and black. Uh, I think that if you had two, or especially if you had three different offenders, they would each take a body and they would you know take their shoelaces and put them on them. Uh, I don't think you would see as much consistency as we do see across all three. If you have three different people or even two different people doing this, and by this I mean concealing the bodies, and I think that the proximity of the bodies, uh, that that's the best way that I can piece together how things would break down. Again, one attacked, manipulation, second one attacked, third one realizes this isn't good, I need to get out of here, and takes off and is caught 27 feet upstream. When we think about the profile of the killer, Donna writes, who thinks to get rid of clothing in such a specific and meticulous way? I would think to bury it or carry it out and throw it in a dumpster. Made me think of someone in the spycraft or military where you learn to use what's around and make do long enough to get away and avoid discovery, and hopefully destroy evidence in the process. Yeah, and, and we're, we're a little ways away from getting into a full profile, but I guess we're kind of giving pieces and I, I love the thought process where we're looking at individual items from the crime scene and the behaviors that we're witnessing here and trying to kind of piece together who we're looking for so to me the concealment of the clothes tells me you're looking at someone an offender or offenders that are sharp enough to know that if the clothes are found the boys are found and likely they're found out so they're, they're trying to get rid of them and as far as coming to that conclusion, I, I've said since I started looking at this case, whoever did this is someone who is, I think, highly intelligent and is good under pressure. Obviously, someone probably who has a temper that 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 has violent outbursts, because I think that's how this crime probably happened, but in the same time is able to quickly and calmly calculate a plan while he's you know, 100 feet away from an occupied house in an apartment building full of people just off a path that people use to get to work at the Blue Beacon truck wash out in daylight. As far as the clothes being concealed that way, remember it's May, uh, the high, and I've heard people say the high was in the 80s, but when I checked Weather Underground, I show a high of 73 that day. But in any case, nobody's wearing big parkas. I don't think the killer was was carrying a backpack or anything like that, because I think if they were, they would have done just that, just take the clothes with them. And I also believe this is a good indication that the killer had to come from across the pipe because the reason they would not want to walk out carrying anything with them would be because they have to walk right across, right past a house and apartment buildings that have a view, clear view of the path leading to the crime scene. So, you know, if you see walking out of there, that's one thing. But you're seeing walking out of there with a bunch of clothing, that that's something different. And that takes us back to the bikes as well. On the way back, they're coming to where I think the bikes were probably left by the boys, but that's up for discussion. I mean, that, that's up for interpretation. But we know that the killer then took those bikes and dropped them into the water so they wouldn't be found, too. And all of this is high-risk behavior. It was done under incredible pressure. So as far as the question is for what kind of person would do that, I think you have somebody who is calm under pressure. Yeah, I, think, I, I don't think it's out of the question to think, you know, maybe ex-police, ex-military something of that nature, someone who's able to really stay hyper-focused on the mission in the face of uh, a lot of danger and chaos. Next, Tony writes, Just a thought, shouldn't the perpetrator or perpetrators be covered with mosquito bites as well as the kids? Do we know anything about this from the autopsy? Well, I did address this a little bit last week. I would expect the perpetrator, the offender, or offenders 
most certainly to be covered with mosquito bites for a couple of reasons. One, as we've mentioned a couple of times, and Regina Meek, Officer Meek, testified at trial that when the sun goes down in that area, the mosquitoes come out and they are thick and they're nasty and they're everywhere. But what we experienced was before the sun came down, especially remember this, like we mentioned a minute ago, the temperature. You're not looking at a 95 degree high humidity day. Everybody's sweating. I mean, it's it's a comfortable spring afternoon and evening, just meaning you're, you're not covered in sweat, kind of drawing the mosquitoes into you. But I think that the offender or offenders, when they're doing the body concealment in the creek, they're going to be dripping in sweat. They're working hard. Their blood pressure is going to be through the roof. And all of that is an attractant to mosquitoes. And I think with the boys having been seen alive right close to 7 o'clock, I think the killer had been working really fast to get this done and be out of the woods before dark, which is about 8 in those woods, probably 8 o'clock. And so I think they would have, they still would have been in the woods. I believe it was probably dark by the time the killer exited the woods. And I say that only because of the disposal of the bikes. Standing on that pipe, getting rid of those bikes, you're literally in clear view of the Mayfair apartments. So I think that, you know, I, I, that night, uh, the sun set at 7.50 p.m. And so by 8 o'clock, it's getting pretty close to dark. Dark enough, I think, to put the bikes in the water. It's civil twilight occurred at 8.17 p.m. Now, that's dark, dark at that point. But, I mean, you still have streetlights and things around there. But So, yes, given the fact that the bikes were thrown in the creek, I think probably after dark, and the killer or killers are going to be sweating, I would expect the offender to be, or offenders, to be completely covered in mosquito bites. The boys, however, I would not. I think that they were there before dark. I don't think they were in the woods very long. Uh, in order for this, again, we're looking at such a narrow window of time, they were probably killed within minutes of getting into the woods. Once they're deceased, their blood's not pumping anymore, their body temperature's cooling off, there's nothing to attract the mosquitoes. And within a short period of time, they're in the water. And if you're a swarm of mosquitoes looking for food, you have three boys who, again, aren't sweating. Their their blood's not even pumping anymore. And then you have an offender or offenders who are the exact opposite. Blood pressure through the roof, sweating, moving, uh, body heating up, blood pumping. The killer or killers would be the target for the mosquitoes, in my opinion. And then our last comment here from Abby says, it seems to me that a lot had to happen in that hour. Is that just me? It is a lot. And that kind of goes back to the things that we were saying before. And then, of course, there's the, that's my opinion. That's seven to eight. There's people that believe that the body concealment was happening well into the night. People that believe there, was a, there could have been a body dump. There's many, many theories out there. And we'll get into that stuff later. We're still at the point of trying to just give the facts that we know at this point. But yeah, that's a lot to be done. But one of the reasons why I think that they were out of there, I think the killer was out of there by probably 8 or 8.15 at the very latest, is because it's pitch black. And now it's civil twilight, there's streetlights and things, but in this, they're in thick woods. It's not a big stand of woods, but it's thick woods. And the, the tree canopy, and you can see, and I'll get some of these photos up somewhere, and you can find them online, of those woods is completely enclosed. I mean, meaning... There's like a, a ceiling of leaves above this crime scene, and the actual discovery site where all this was happening was 10 foot down in a ditch in a bank. So what I'm getting at is it was pitch black. You wouldn't have been able to see your hand in front of your face. And it's clear that the person or persons that did this body concealment after the crime could see. There's no possible way 
that this was being done in the dark without a flashlight. Again, given the shoelaces, things of that nature, I certainly don't think that whoever did it brought a flashlight with them because I don't think they planned to do this. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm confident and comfortable in my timeline right now. Now, we're open to anything as, as more evidence comes out. But right now, I feel very confident in saying that the boys went into the woods about 7 o'clock and that the offender or offenders came back out of the woods no later than 8.15. Once it was, it was dark, the mosquitoes were thick, they couldn't see anything anymore. So it's about an hour to be safe, an hour and 15-minute window, but that includes pursuit, attack, concealment, and exit from the crime scene. And yes, it is a lot to do, and whoever did this is someone that people around the person or persons would know them as the person that is calm and collected under pressure. Now, again, I'm not saying it's a person that doesn't lose their cool. I think is clearly this is someone who will pop their cork. But when there's something that needs to be done under pressure, this is the person or these are the people that the people around them know that you can count on to stay calm and get things done and to have a plan. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. Amanda Meyer created our Friday follow-up logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, Anna Dindorf, and Sarah Mueller. Thank you to Katie Ross and Chris Brinkley for designing, creating, managing, maintaining our website. And thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support in all of these Friday follow-up episodes and in the case in general. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, ideas, and questions to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can also comment on our Facebook page. You can also join in on the discussion at the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. Or you can send in your voicemails. We would love to have some of your voicemails in these follow-up episodes, but so far we haven't had many of them come in. Leave those voicemails sometime before Wednesday every week at 269-224-2833. And of course, my favorite place to interact with all of you is on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice.
Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to eating some turkey and seeing the family and having a good time. Oh, I mean, I, what do you think about the whole concept of me, you know, talking about? I, I don't It's fine. Uh, yeah, it's the holiday season. It's the holiday. It's Lucy. Lucy Goosey. Right. Relaxy. Uh, so cut out what you just said, and then I'll just come keep going. Okay. <laughs> I'll lead you into it, you know, because that got weird for a minute. Okay. Did you know that Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the U.S.? And while many people... I did not know that. <laughs> you going to let me do this, Bob? Yeah. What's it called? Ancho? Ancho beef. What is ancho beef? Ancho business. <laughs> Set you right up. <coughs> All right. I thought you said some kind of chili pepper. I I, I think it is. but no, I, You don't know. Don't ask that question. It's ancho chili powder okay. sauce is what I got in a little cup. Now, I'm assuming there's a thing called ancho chilies out there, like peppers, that they make. That they ground up into a sauce. Right. That's all I got for you. Okay. Was it good? Yeah. Okay. You said, so go back. You said it was legit? I did. We're keeping legit. And that's right where we left off. And then you're asking what's ancho beef, and I'm I'm not confident in my understanding of what it is. How how about... (laughs) (laughs) Bobby wants to eat lunch. I know. I've got a taco left over if you want one. Kate writes, wondering if there was a talk screen done on the Did board. Did you mean that about the taco? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not going to give it. It's my last one. <laughs> and I'm not going to give it to you. But Why'd you say that? I was bluffing. I want that taco. No, you don't. You really don't. What'd your wife make last night? Uh, she made some sort of um, Asian chicken in the Instapot. Okay. It's Good. delicious. Good. I'm going to have that. You Just, want some? No. Can't have any. F*** you. I'm going to have a taco. <laughs> Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.